Okay, we are going to be turning once again this morning to the book of Romans. We are in chapter 4, and uh, we are going to be working on verses 19 through 25 and wrapping up that chapter this morning. Uh, We've been bogged down here just a little bit. Uh, There's so much you can glean from this particular chapter that has everything to do with uh, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ uh, as our Lord and as our Savior. Uh, I'm actually going to go back to verse 13 and start reading, but when we start preaching, we're going to start with verse 18. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's that's one of the most key verses in that chapter. This is what Paul is arguing about is that that Abraham is not only the father of the Jewish people, but he's also the father of all people who have faith in Abraham. God, and that is true faith in God, as we know, comes only through knowledge and, and faith in Jesus Christ. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives us life, or gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had had promised, he was able to also perform. Therefore, also as it was reckoned to him as righteousness, now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I'm not going to take the time this morning to go back into the book of Genesis, but if you do that, you're going to find that God, in a number of places, spoke to, to Abraham. The most important passages in regard to Abraham are chapter 12, uh, uh, chapter 17, chapter 15, chapter 17. Uh, and what you're going to find there is this. is In those chapters, God makes promises to Abraham. Now, what were those promises? Okay, prosperity. He was, he was, well, let me just, I'll just lay this out for you, okay? He was promised a land, that he was, that God was going to give him this land that his descendants would inherit, right? Uh, he also promised him that his name would be great. That he would be a blessing to people. 
God said that he would bless those who bless him and he would curse those who curse him. He also promised him that through him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. You may not realize this, but when God began promising Abram these things, he was already 75 years old. Now, there's some people in this room that know what it feels like to be 75 years old. Some of us don't. But some of us are getting closer and closer to it all the time. One of the things I want you to glean from all of this is how phenomenal the work that God did in Abraham's life really was. Exceptionally good. The average person, when they would have heard God making promises like this to them, would have certainly questioned things. Because if you look at those different chapters in, in the book of Genesis 12, 15, and 17, you're going to find that there's a gradual unfolding of these promises to Abraham, and you're going to find that it took place over a 25-year period of time. You may not know it, but the name Abram, his name was Abram, which means father. Later on, in chapter 17, God changed his name to Abraham, and we know him as Abraham, which means father of many or father of people. Now, can you imagine, just for a moment, being Abraham? Being 75 years, or being 75 years old. Twenty-five years passed, and he went to the land. Twenty-five years passed, and Abraham and Sarah still had no children. God appeared to him again and spoke to him. And when he reminded him of the promise that he made him, that he would have a son. Because see, that a lot of the promises, that, all the promises really that God made to Abraham hinged on one thing, and that was this, is he had to have an heir. He had to have a son. If he didn't have a son, God wouldn't be able to do any of those things. How could he become a great nation? How could all the families of the earth be blessed? It was absolutely essential and necessary that Abraham have a son. For those promises that God made to him, for those things to be fulfilled. And without that son, there was no hope of any of the rest of it ever happening. If you know the rest of the story, you know that Abraham was not always that faithful a fellow. That he had his doubts. I'll tell you one of the things about Abraham that really should, should really grab hold of all of our hearts. And that is the real humanness of Abraham. I hope you don't have this picture of him as a man who never had any doubt about things. That he always did the right thing. That he was sinless himself and that's why God blessed him so much. Because among all men he was 
without sin or he was less sinful than they were. If you read the narratives and the stories about him in the book of Genesis, you can't come to that conclusion. What she's cry out to us is the real humanness of this man. In other words, we should see reflections of ourselves in him. Because when God spoke to him very clearly that second time, 25 years later, Abraham's first response, or Abram's first response was, he laughed. How funny that is. That a man 100 years old and a woman who is 99 years old will have a baby. We have every reason to believe that both of them physically, apart from any act from God, were totally, at this point, absolutely incapable of having children I mean what would you do how would you respond to something like that if if someone said it to you probably a lot of you would freak out because you've been there before and you know what you'd be going back through There's something else that we need to bring into this picture, and that is the utter and the absolute faithfulness of God. Abraham did not always do what he promised God he would do. God, on the other hand, always did what he promised Abraham he would do for him. He never failed him one time. Just remember in 15, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham... Abram, at that point, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is what makes him the father of all those who will believe. It's through our faith in God, our faith in Jesus Christ specifically. Now, did Abraham know everything about, about Jesus that we do? The answer to that is probably no, probably not even close. He wasn't even sure at that point how God was going to accomplish all these things. But his trust was in God. We need to address something else. Because Paul and, and, and the other apostles, when they mention this, and even Jesus, they, did, they picture Abraham as being a man that never doubted God. But if you work through the stories of Abraham in the book of Genesis, you know that he had doubts about things, that he did things that were downright sinful. He wasn't a perfect person. His faith in God even was not perfected. So I've struggled with this. How is it that Paul declares him as being this, just this, I mean, you read this passage in, in, uh, in Romans and you get the idea that, that Abraham had a faith that was perfect and he practiced that perfect faith. So how do you reconcile the two? Well, what I would say to you is this. Is were there times when Abraham had doubt? Doubt that God would do what he said he would do? 
Obviously, he did. You, you, you couldn't know the rest of the Bible and come to the conclusion that there were not times when Abraham had doubts. Doubts that God would do what he said he would do. But see, the thing about Abraham that stands out, and you find it here in verse 21, being fully assured that he had promised, or what he had promised, he was able to do. In other words, there were times when Abraham doubted God would do what he said he would do, but at the same time, he always knew that God was capable of doing everything he promised. He never doubted that. He knew deep down inside, even when he was 100 years old, if God wanted he and Sarah to have that baby, that baby would be born. Could be and would be. Isn't that a picture of you and I in a lot of ways? Don't we all know this, that God is capable of doing everything he says he will do? We don't doubt that. We don't doubt his capacity. We, we don't doubt his ability. Our doubts always come in when it comes to will he? Not can he, but will he? Because we know God is the ultimate being, and God is not one to be manipulated by people at all. God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. What are your biggest thoughts that you have about God? We were talking about this. You know, most of the, the things that we understand from a human perspective don't do justice at all to a real understanding of the being of God himself. We were talking the other night in our Bible study about standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And we have this picture of like one by one, each one of us is going to go and stand before the judgment seat and, and the judgment is going to be made upon us. But you know, when we have little thoughts, and I'm saying that's a little thought that confines God to our understanding of things. Do you understand that God's judgment can take place on every person that has ever taken place or ever lived or ever been all at the same time? In other words, the whole judgment of all of mankind could take place instantaneously. Everybody. And we need to get away from this kind of idea that each, each one, one by one, you know, how long is that going to take? How many people have lived on earth? It's going to take longer than the earth's been around to be able for God to do that. No, 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 no. God doesn't work in, on our timetable. God doesn't work in the dimensions of time and space and things like that. He created all of this stuff. 
you understand that in human, there's no way that I can use human language. There's no way that your limited human brain can really come to a very deep understanding of the very being of God himself. That what we know about him is true knowledge, but do you understand that we know just an inkling of what there is to know? I really believe this with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. That what our occupation is going to be in eternity is knowing God. We're going to be contemplating God more and more. And, 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 as, and as eternity passes, we will understand more and more. But you know what? We're going to understand that the more we understand, the more there is to understand. That there will be no, no end to knowing God. And the more we know Him, the more we will love Him, the more we will adore Him, the more we will understand for eternity, ever-increasing knowledge into eternity. It will not end. There are all kinds of things that wherever we are right now that limit us in our worship of him. Lori and I were in a church just recently and it almost made me want to cry. Because you almost felt like you were in a rock concert. There were people on stage performing, and of course the congregation was supposed to be singing along with them. There were a few. But this room was filled up with people. And every now and then, the music would be turned back down so the congregation could sing forth. And in that huge room, it was barely a whisper. I love to stand here on Sunday morning. Stand there on Sunday morning. To hear all of you behind me. Worshiping. Do you understand that worship is something you participate in? It's not something you watch. You do it. Or it's not worship. That's why we have things like responsive readings. You're reading it. You're saying it. You're not listening to someone else read it. You're participating. You're active in the process. There may be some of you here that are still holding back. Maybe people have told you your whole lifetime you can't sing as well as a dog or something. You have no voice for singing. <laughs> Let me tell you something. 
God could care less whether you sound like an angel. What he cares about is hearing you. Hearing what you have to say to him. I may regret saying that. Because some people have the gift of singing, some people really don't much. But let me tell you something. As far as feeling free, free to do what God calls you to do, there should be no place that is more about freedom than this room is. Place where you can feel free, absolutely free to to sing joyfully no matter what that sounds like to other people God loves it that's what he wants from you after all he doesn't ask much of us does he he gives us so much we are very privileged people to have all the things that we have more so than any people that have ever lived on the planet as a whole. He wants our heart. And he won't settle for anything less. Nor should he. You need to express that heart in your worship. There's one more more point I want to make, and that is Paul emphasizes this in the last few verses, 24 and, and 25. And that is this, is that God had blessed Abraham and made these promises to him, and he fulfilled all these promises to him, not only for his benefit, but Abraham's faith was intended to benefit other people. Those that lived around him, his family. But even more than that, do you benefit from the faith of Abraham? Yeah. And how many generations lie in between us? A whole bunch of them. But one of the reasons, and there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons, one of the key people in the reason that we are here this morning is Abraham. The faith of Abraham. You might sit here this morning. You may have a huge sphere of influence where you have a lot of people, uh, influence on a lot of people. Maybe there are a few people that, live, uh, that are in this room have that kind of influence. But the truth is every one of us has a sphere of influence, Right? Our family, our neighbors, our neighborhood. Maybe people we work with, people we go to school with. What if Abraham had just concluded, well, my faith is for me. And it's just, you know, so I, yeah, I get all these cool things and whatever. And so my faith is mine and it just kind of ends with me. What if he had that kind of faith? He's the father of nations. Is his name great today in the world? You bet it is. Not just amongst Christians, but he's highly regarded also by Muslims and Jews. 
through the church of Jesus Christ, we will see God's promise to him that he will have descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as numerous as the stars in the sky. An unbelievably large family. So many it cannot conceivably be counted. And the thing that connects us, most of us, because we're Gentile believers is not the bloodline of Abraham, but his faith. That's how he is our father. He's the father, in essence, of our faith. In other words, what I'm saying here is we benefited from his faith and the people around us and who come after us ought to also benefit from ours. That God doesn't give us faith just so we can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. He gives us faith for that reason. But He also gives us faith so we can share it with other people. And I just want to encourage you to be about that. Think about some, maybe some novel ways of doing that. I would imagine every one of you had neighbors in your neighborhood who are unbelievers. Most of you have family members that are unbelievers. There are people in your sphere of influence that are unbelieving. And my challenge for you is this. Have you reached out in faith? To them. It's a challenge. A daily challenge. Apart from him, it cannot be done. But in him, it certainly can be. Lean not on your understanding. Trust in the word of God. Believe with every ounce of your being. And it will radiate from you like, I don't know, brilliant light. I hope, well, what about this Reformation stuff? What if John Calvin, and what if Martin Luther, and Zwingli, and Wycliffe, and, and, and all of these others who put their life on the line, really, to make sure that you and I had this available to us? You understand that one of the biggest revolts that was taking place in the Reformation was this, was the church itself had withheld the word of God on purpose from the people for 1,800 years. They didn't have Bibles sitting on their dining table or on their coffee table in their living room. 
They didn't have Bibles on the shelf in their home. They did not have Bibles at all because the church did not want them to have a Bible because their idea was that the, 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 the Bible is for the clergy. We study it, we read it, and we explain to you what it says. Talk about perfect timing. That Reformation came about just at the same time the printing press was invented. Up to that point, the only way you could get a Bible was either to transcribe a copy for yourself or have somebody do it for you. Bibles were really expensive because of that. But God's perfect timing. People talk about Luther being the powder keg that set off the Reformation. That was not it at all. It was the very word of God that was the powder keg of the Reformation given to the people in the pews and preached with power and might. Passion. Let us not take it for granted. It's a great gift from God.